Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. We have a very special two-part series for you, starting today with part one on the banjo, talking all about the banjo makers, and we do have a special guest from the Museum of Making Music, Bill Kilpatrick. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. It's a way to start. Fantastic. <laughs> so we have a special guest with us today, Bill Kil- Kilpatrick from the museum. Um, yeah, we are super happy that he was able to come and play a little bit of the banjo for our banjo podcast. Oh, thanks for asking me. Yeah. <laughs> so Bill, uh, tell us a little bit about your role at the Museum of Making Music. Uh, I am the education manager, which means a couple of things. I manage the volunteer group, which is probably close to 80 strong now, Uh, and then book the tours, uh, and between uh, David Liggett and myself, manage the uh, tour guide program, the tour uh, facilitator program. As far as scheduling the tours, making sure we have uh, bodies here to cover those tours, and uh, following up with uh, surveys from the teachers, and just making sure our tour program is, is robust and the kids are you know, having a great time. The teachers are very happy with uh, with their visit here. That's fantastic. That's awesome. And obviously, you know how to play an instrument or two. <laughs> how did that all start? What was your first <laughs> instrument? Well, my very first, actually, if you want to go all the way back, was the bass recorder when I was probably about three feet tall. My, <laughs> my mom, my dad, and my sister, who's the oldest, and then my oldest brother, uh, learn recorder quartets, which are absolutely beautiful. If you've never heard them, uh, check them out. And they thought it'd be pretty cute to have the littlest guy <laughs> in the family playing an instrument that was probably taller than me. So I got to do the umpapa on the bass clarinet with our bass. Uh, what do they say? Bass recorder yeah. with their recorder quartets, <laughs> That's awesome. which I think led to an affinity that I have for sort of Renaissance music. Uh, the recorder and Stairway to Heaven, for instance. <laughs> my ear. I didn't get that gig, unfortunately. But uh, truly the instrument I've stuck with since uh, age nine was the guitar. 
And that just came about from an across-the-street neighbor friend who said, hey, Bill, let's make a band. You play guitar and I'll play drums. I said, okay. So I bought a $25 uh, nylon guitar from Mr. B's Music in Palos Verdes. And wow. The rest is history. So, uh, Bill, what was your introduction to the banjo? Fear. Um, <laughs> I have been playing uh, in pit orchestras for coming up on 40 years now, if you can believe that. And uh, as a guitarist, uh, when you take a show, the guitar book will very often say uh, acoustic steel guitar, electric guitar, banjo, mandolin. So by, by hook or by crook, you kind of have to fake your way through learning these instruments. Uh, you're familiar with Tommy Tedesco, of course. Yeah. And I was a huge follower of Tommy back in the 80s. Uh, and one of his tricks was to take whatever string instrument he was asked to play and tune it like a guitar. And that way he got through it real quickly. <laughs> so for years and years, I, uh, I used a, an old five-string banjo that I took off the drone string and tuned the top four. Actually, they're tuned pretty much like a guitar anyway, mm. except for the high D. You just go up a step, you've got the E, and now you've got guitar tuning. Although when you use the six-string, that really throws you off your game. So I hope this is okay to make a shameless plug here. I eventually got smart and bought this beautiful Deering Boston six-string banjo. Mm-hmm. And it's tuned like a guitar, and away you go. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Bill talking about his Deering banjo is the perfect segue into our next segment, starting with Janet Deering, all about the science behind the banjo. So tell me about some of the projects that you guys have been involved with. Well, back in 2010, we developed a new tone ring where Jens Kruger and uh, he got a computer modeling program that would uh, take different shapes and uh, different materials and project if you have a ring this shape and you, and you, you vibrate it, what kind of sound vibrations will come out of it and he experimented with various shapes to determine what shape would give you the other vibrations off that tone ring that were in harmony with the primary note mm. so that uh, traditional banjos you'd, you'd, you'd hit the tone ring or you'd ring the tone ring and you'd get other vibrations that were not in harmony so you get this, this kind of a sound of the banjo some people found not as pleasant as they wanted it or that they actually didn't like the banjo. There's a lot of people who don't like the banjo. So we, uh, the 2010 tone ring was a patent we got in 2010 that was the result of that of we found a shape that actually gave you harmonics that were in tune with the primary note or complementary to the primary note. And that we put into the Eagle banjo. We released that in 2010. And then we used that same shape on the Good Time special banjos, but we made that, those tone rings out of steel, whereas the, the Eagle tone rings are out of bronze, and that's a more expensive tone ring, so the Good Time special has a steel tone ring, the same shape. Then that just really revolutionized the sound of, of those instruments, and in, a, in an affordable price range, which was really nice, that we could do that advancement in something anybody could afford. And that's been kind of along keeping with Greg's personal goal when he got into the banjos was to make a banjo that anybody could afford that because uh, he couldn't afford a banjo and that's why he built his first one so he wanted to make something anybody could afford to get and so the 2010 tone ring was a big launch and then uh, more recently we developed the smile bridge which was you know just looking at the bridge itself 
are the bridges doing everything we should have out of a banjo bridge? And we realized that uh, over all these years, with all these banjos made all these years, nobody had thought about the fact that the banjo head dips from the pressure of the strings because it's a membrane. So the strings give you a little dip, but the bottom of the bridge was flat. So bridges would kind of have these stresses and fall into that dip, and that didn't allow that bridge to float, to vibrate freely. So we thought, well, let's, let's develop a bridge that takes that, comp comp you know, actually it has, is built to go into that curve. And when we produced those bridges, it was like magic. The banjo sound opened up to a beautiful, fuller, more um, mid-range, much more pleasant tone on any banjo we put it on, it sounds better. And it's just like such a, a minor change, but it's huge to what it did to the banjos. So we got that patent and that's a, a really exciting advancement for the banjo, just a simple development to take it to the next level of perfection. That was amazing. And then we came out with a patent on the uh, white oak. Greg had always wanted to build a white oak guitar because when he was a repairman at the American Dream way back, he played some white oak guitars and said, these are amazing. And they weren't expensive guitars, but there were only a few made by one maker. And so he said, someday I should do one. I should make a white oak guitar. Well, all these years down the road, we'd done a lot with banjos. And he was talking to Jens Kruger and saying, I'd really like to make a white oak guitar. And Jens said, well, why don't you make a white oak banjo? And he was like, Hadn't thought of it. So he started experimenting. We have had built our own rim, you know, steaming and bending area for the rims, and we could use any wood there. And so we made white oak rims. It took a lot of work to get that to work because white oak doesn't bend easily. You had to get it just right to get it to work. But we made the rim and the neck and the resonator all out of white oak. And where um, banjos had had white oak necks before, nobody had ever done the entire banjo out of white oak. And when you, we put it together, the sound of that banjo is miraculous. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily better or than every other tone ring banjo, but it's so complimentary. It's this whole new beautiful tone. Mm that allows it to ring so loud that you really don't need a metal tone ring for that. In fact, when we put a metal tone ring in it, it wasn't as good. So that was a patent of simplifying the banjo when you could drop apart and do something with a simpler design and get a very improved result. Um, that was a, a very strong patent. So though we've come out with the Deering White Lotus and the Vega White Oak models and those are selling great and they're they're more affordable too because you you now are not investing in a tone ring but the white oak is doing the same sound performance or or complementary sound performance to a tone ring some people still like the tone ring you know the metal bronze because you get that that really high metallic sound but the white oak gives you a, a full-on sound and gives you the highs but it's not as metallic mm. so that's pretty nice because the volumes there yeah, so that's been another new advancement, and that was just a couple of years ago. Janet Deering, wow, that's great to hear from her. Uh, that's taken from her NAM oral history interview, as all of these are for the uh, the podcast. And I'm just really 
delighted because we have the opportunity to really go in deep here with the segment of the music products industry that uncovers this amazing passion. You know, there's a whole sort of subculture of banjo lovers and those who are attracted. And I hope many of you are listening. Uh, this is a really exciting project for us because we get to shed light on some of the stories that we have captured over the years. Uh, one of which is that the next person up, um, Renee Carnes is a, uh, an amazing artist when it comes to putting details into banjos, uh, putting in inlay in a way that makes these most amazing pictures and concepts. Uh, the first time I had ever seen any of her art, I was just blown away. It was a wolf in a sort of a, um, a snow setting, and it was just unbelievable, absolutely. You must have have to have the most steady hand to do that kind of work. Crazy. Just the smallest amount of detail and dropping in like the little pearl inserts oh and everything. I could never do that. It was just gorgeous. Uh, for anyone who's never seen any of her work, I suggest you Google it and then you get stuck and you zoom in and you look at all of the details that she adds into these instruments. It's mind blowing. And you know, in addition to that, there is the idea of coming up with that concept to begin with and saying, okay, how am I going to turn this art into something on an instrument because the details of doing that and then the challenges of doing that you got to worry about the frets in the way and you got to worry about the contour of it and how this shape changes it's not a canvas you know this is a musical instrument and in addition to all of those other things you certainly don't want to do anything that takes away from the tonality of the mm -hmm. instrument right. so right. it's amazing the challenges and I stand in awe of her and the many other people who uh, who make this their their craft so let's hear a little bit of the banjo and, and her concepts. Uh, here is Renee Carnes. Now, could you help me understand the difference between um, mo all the uh, instruments that we have here now of yours all have the, what I refer to as the resonator in it, as opposed to more of the, the old time. Is, uh -huh. is, is that how, how do you describe the difference between those two? Well, in the beginning when the banjos um, were first being built, they were all open back. And to understand how a banjo works in very layman's terms, which explains, really un makes you understand how a banjo works. You strum it on the front, and the sound waves that come off the front of a banjo head, the same amount go back into your body. So what happens is that banjo sounds on an open back sounds very loud in your face because you have all this sound coming here, and it can be heard so far away, um, a distance away from you. What happened when it got into vaudeville years, well, you had vaudeville, you had um, this rowdy crowd out there, uh, and the banjos couldn't be heard. They needed, you know, there was no amplification, so they needed a way to um, throw that sound out there. So that was the production of the resonator came, or came on, and first they did this hubcap thing. Um, they had several different styles that they started with where you have the trap door and they set it inside but there again there was no way as soon as you put the trap door now you had no sound coming anywhere it just was locked inside the tone chamber so in the 20s uh, late teens you see um, say bacon was building banjos but you see now day comes on and you have the bacon and day banjos well that's what day was the was the acoustic guy he was the one that started um, designing the flanges. And what that did was give it a lag 
so the sound waves came back what would come back into your body came back into the back of the resonator reflected and came out the sound holes depending on how deep or how shallow that t sound chamber was the lag time is what makes that note sound so pretty is that you had this initial sound waves going out and then you have these trailing ones and that's where you get your harmonics and the real pretty rounded sound of a banjo note starts now emerging my banjos are made to what my ear hears and what I want that lag because to me um, the best one of the best um, remarks somebody can make about my banjo is how musical they sound how pretty they sound so for a banjo to get a pretty and a musical you know description is pretty good you know <laughs> that's pretty desirous of a banjo and that's what I get with mine is that um, I, I guess it's it's the difference of you know say blowing on a harmonica and you get one note and then if you blow on harmonica and hit many notes at the time how full it sounds and that's what I'm going for is that full sound mm. and um, so that's kind of a quick lesson and the, the resonator on yours are very heavy and, and thick, right? I mean... No, not really, because that resonator comes off, and it's, it's just the very back, so it's quite light. What makes my banjos heavy, and it's another part of the construction, is the actual tone ring. And so, um, if you look at what I call the tone chamber, um, you would kind of um, compare it to a drum. So you have the round rim and then you have a tone ring which actually um, gives off the nice ringing sound and the head mounts on top of that so depending on what that tone ring is made of will increase the, the tone tonal you know full sound in the beginning um, they were just pulled over wood so again not not much there Next they came out and they had just like a quarter round steel ring. Well that kind of gave it a little bit um, tinnier ringing sound. And then they started doing just varying styles of that, aprons and stuff. And now, um, state of the art, I'm using um, a Huber tone ring, which is a bell bronze. When you hit it, it literally rings like a bell. So you get um, duration of note. It rings, it's kind of like holding down the uh, loud pedal on a piano. Instead of just the initial note, you get this much more um, extended ringing. Hmm. And it comes through the notes. The strings pick it up and the sound is there. Uh, the biggest difference probably on my resonators is I put much more, much more dish into them. I, I believe it's more of a funneling effect instead of a just I mean, I always, you know, how does that sound reflected? It, it, you know, if you think about light reflected off of a mirror and how it bounces back, I mean, it's kind of the same idea that it has to bounce and come out through those sound holes. So I, I play more with that kind of idea and how I'm going to get the, the, actually the notes out of there and have that nice lag time. Now, is the dish where the wood is attached on the, on the sides? Um, the dish actually is, um, if you had it flat, that would be flat, and then I actually have mine rounded. Mm. So the dish is actually in the inside, and it's rounded up. Oh, I got you. Okay. okay. 
um, varying, you know, some may have an eighth, if you ran a straight edge across, may have an eighth of an inch, may have a quarter of an inch, may have five sixteenths of an inch. Each one of those variables changes the cubic inch space within that tone chamber and all that has to do with how that sound comes out and how those um, sound waves are compressed to bounce out because um, still the head is a diaphragm so even though it's moving minimal, minimal, minimally <laughs> up and down when you're strumming that note with the vibrations it still is doing this and that compression is what changes the sound waves Interesting. Now, from the luthier point of view, you—I've never made a banjo, so um, I'm assuming that there's molds for um, most of the stuff that we've been talking about. Now, you're right that it's standard. Once you make it, it's the ring is the same size, or does it vary from instrument to instrument? And I guess the bigger question that I'm getting at is how, what factors. Uh, do you see that you're able to manipulate the materials so that you can have a unique sound? Um, actually, many, because my clientele have all played vintage instruments, okay? And each one of those vintage instruments, depending on which one they're playing, has a different that's why they were so many. They all, they, they all had people playing along with all these acoustic ways that they could change sound and make a, a, a banjo say um, send the sound waves, you know, send sound all the way to the back of a of a room, how some could be quieted it down. Everybody's ear hears differently so some who would want this big bold sound, um, say Dixieland jazz player, he's got to play with horns. He, he's lucky if he can hear his banjo playing in his lap next to a horn player but they can with mine. But they will play with that big tone ring that gives all this driving. It's like a grand piano out there. It's giving all this driving sound. So yeah, he can hear it. The people out here can hear it. The horn players can hear it. Now the horn players are trying to overplay it because they don't understand why they can hear that banjo. Okay, same thing. You could take that same banjo, put in um, a reproduction tubaphone tone ring, which is what originally they came with. Um, it gives a very sweet, uh, much, and I don't want to say mellower because it's not quieter, it's just a sweeter sound and not that big driving sound, but it still can be heard to the back of the room. Well, two different people are going to play it two different ways. Some people want that old, old time sound, some people want this new big sound. So it really just depends on what my customer wants is, is the way that I'm going to make it. So I will sit down and talk to him and say, you know, all right, what kind of sound do you want? And I work from there and say, okay, I think I'm going to have to do this. I think I'm going to have to do that. And I change. Um, I have one of those banjos in there um, was built for a world-class classical guitarist. Well, you can't get much different between banjo and guitar. And I thought, my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to come up with the sound that he's going to, that's going to be all right for him? So I, it, it became a very much deeper chamber and much throatier, brought out much deeper tones in it and from the time he got it he quit playing his guitar and played it all the time because it did have the sound that he wanted but it's you know you just hope you hope that you got it you know and so far I've been pretty lucky. 
You know, for me, I was trying to think, when did I really first hear a banjo? And I think I actually remember. Ooh, I want to hear. You want to hear my story? Yes. I'll make it short. Uh, my best friend since the fifth grade is Bob Calhoun. Shout out to Bob. Hi, Bob. Who, is this Bob the Blob? Yes. He lovingly <laughs> goes by Blob. <laughs> and um, I think we were in the sixth grade, and we walked from Menlo Park in our house in, in the Bay Area to Rod's Rare Records in San Carlos. And that was a long walk. I don't know what the walk... It had to have been at least three miles, but probably more than that. And so we get there, and I had saved some money to buy an Elvis record at Rod's Rare Records, but that record was sold out with the time I got there because I had to save for it. And so Rod's like, well, the the next one is this one over here. And it's like, eh, it's, I don't want that, you know. And the other ones I couldn't afford. They didn't have enough money. So he was kind of felt sorry for me. He goes, well, there's a bin over here of other completely different. It's not Elvis, but there's other stuff over here. And there was a record that I could afford with a, a little pocket change I brought. I forgot how much it was. I think it was like $2.50. <laughs> I didn't want to say that part because it's embarrassing. But anyway, um, it was Elizabeth Cotton. And I didn't. I hadn't heard of her. I, did, I didn't know anything about her, but I could afford it. And it looked cool. And what I was taken is she had a uh, guitar on the cover that was upside down and backwards. And I thought, well, that's cool. I wonder what this is. I kind of thought it may have been like comical. And so all the way home, Bob and I are trying to figure, I wonder what it's like. Well, you know, she's African-American, so maybe this is like, you know, roots music and, you know, Americana. And we didn't have any idea what it was. Well, it turns out that's exactly what it was, folk music. And she played the banjo in addition to playing the guitar. And the first song that we, I played side two first and the first song on side two was her playing the banjo. And I was just blown away. I thought, wow, this is amazing because she had a way of picking where she, nobody taught her how to play uh, a musical instrument. She started with the guitar, but then became very, very good at the banjo. And what she would do is she laid it down on flat on her lap so that she could look at what she was doing with her fingers. Cause otherwise, you know, where, where are the frets? Her fingers kept hitting the frets. And so she would play this little game with her fingers and her thumb and say, okay, well this one, t the thumb touched the first string. I'm not gonna have that happen again until it goes all the way around. So now the second finger is gonna touch the third string. And now the fourth finger is, and it was like a game cause she was like 11 years old or however it was. And so that actually became such an, interesting style that people actually call it cotton picking now and <laughs> she developed this whole style so anyway i'm listening to this and bob and i are looking at each other like that was so cool i can't believe we bought this record so i think that was the first time i ever heard a banjo oh, that was a great story that was delightful oh <laughs> was that insightful <laughs> i don't know if you're going to use that but yeah that was no, it was that. so fun that I'll was really, that right here that was really a neat memory Next up, we have innovations of the banjo. And to talk a little bit about how far the banjo has come is the Deerings, Greg Deering and Janet Deering. And so tell me how you've expanded and, and developed the line. It's the Deering Vega. Mm -hmm. Well, we started first with the, the long neck, and that's a whole interesting story about trying to work with Pete Seeger on that. Hmm. We have, we're not able to get him to do an endorsement because he doesn't believe in the cult of the personality. Um, 
But that's a, that's a whole, whole other story. But that was my love. That was the banjo I wanted when I first started playing the banjo. So that was my first priority. Mm. And then we started doing the standard size banjos that old-timey players use. The um, Vega number no. two with the tubaphone tone ring. The Little Wonders with the Senator tone ring or no tone ring at all. And it was kind of a fun adventure for me because I immediately did the ones that I was used to seeing, the ones built in the 60s. And as soon as we got it onto the market, all the real traditional claw hammer players, especially from the Appalachian Mountains, go, those aren't Vegas. They were all playing the old ones, so I had to change the shape of the peg head and, and make them just like the old ones rather than the ones I was used to, hmm. which was fine, and it's been fun. We've made a couple of Voxes, but we haven't got into production on the Voxes. At some point, we will. Uh, but I've retooled for the bracket band and the tubaphone tone ring. Had to figure out how to do that all myself. And um, so we make those parts right here. Very interesting. And uh, we haven't issued the white lady tone ring. There was two tone rings that were the predominant ones in the Vega period and the Fairbanks period. The White Lady was developed by Fairbanks. The tubaphone came around when it was Vega Fairbanks. Um, the most popular one is the tubaphone. The next most popular one, the White Lady. They're very similar but different. And uh, this next year, we, we plan on issuing uh, or reissuing the White Lady also. So. You know, uh, a couple of months ago, just before the NAMM show in Nashville, I got to uh, go up to Kentucky and interview uh, Harry Sparks, which is a lot of fun. And he was telling me his take on the master tone and how it's sort of the coveted uh, period of the 20s. What, you, what is your take on that? Well, the master tone is an interesting thing. I'm not an absolute expert on all the details. The ones that have become the icons for the bluegrass world were not the 20s banjos, it was the 30s banjos. Mm. And in the 20s and 30s, 90% of the banjos Gibson made were for Dixieland jazz and they were four strings. In the early 30s, which are the holy grail of the bluegrass banjos, there was only about 150 original banjos that were five strings all the pre-war flatheads that are getting fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars for nowadays have new necks on them. They weren't originally five strings. The ones that were originally five strings are all going well into the six figures. And that's kind of a thing that that's just the banjo that the heart of the guys that created bluegrass banjo. Um, Earl Scruggs, Don Reno, et cetera, et cetera. Those were the banjos they chose. Um, but there's still a lot of lore and urban legend about that. There's fact and there's fiction. Mm. And it's hard to sort it all out. Because some of the old, one of the albums that Earl recorded used the TV one that didn't even have a tone ring in it. Really? And it was still magical because the, it's not the banjo that creates the magic, it's who's playing it. It's, it's a, a mission. In, in the early years when JD of our company, when J.D. Crow was getting really popular, we had a constant stream of customers wanting us to build a banjo that would sound like J.D. Crow's. And we could build a banjo as close to identical as J.D.'s is, as we possibly could. 
But unless JD was playing it, it wasn't going to sound like JD. <laughs> and that's that's part of uh, the the magic and the and the romance and the intrigue and, and adventure of what we do is there's objective and subjective things. It's like objectively we can know that we're making this banjo with the best possible ways to making it for it to sound good and play well. But subjectively, how it's going to sound depends on the artist who's playing it. Um, we had a conversation with Bela Fleck once and he told us he got to go visit Bela, uh, Earl Scruggs and Earl Scruggs wanted to play um, Bela's banjo. And he goes, it was so frustrating because as soon as he picked it up, it sounded just like Earl. He <laughs> says, I can't make that banjo do that. <laughs> and then Bela told us in that same conversation that when Earl gave Bela his banjo back, he said, I started playing it. And for a couple of minutes, I sounded like Earl, and then it went away. <laughs> so there's just this whole romance and intrigue of trying to find the magic. Yeah. And the whole music industry is about finding the magic and the banjo just has its piece. About eight years ago, maybe a little more, John Cavanaugh came to visit us during one of our Christmas celebrations at Open House. And he brought this new patent he'd gotten, uh, which is the Cavanjo Banjo Pickup. Now we'd had the Crossfire for many years, very successful patent. <laughs> It had gone its full course and been wonderful um, with the Fleck tones and all the different people who played it, Dixie Chicks. But we knew that the two things people had asked us for that we hadn't done on the Crossfire, and that was one, that it be round, and two, that it be able to be played acoustic as well as electric. The Crossfire was really only electric. And so we were thinking about what could we do for that, and John Cavanaugh came and said, Tell me what you think of this new idea. And it was, he'd taken a banjo head and he'd put holes in the head, which, you know, people are like, no, you can't put holes in a banjo head. <laughs> and then he put a pickup, a magnetic pickup behind the head with spacers so it wasn't resting on the head. And the pickup poles came through the head. So five pickup poles, one for, two for every string, so 10 actual holes. And they uh, go through the head and then the pickup pole piece is screwed in with an Allen wrench above the head, through the hole, into the magnetic pickup behind. So here's an example. Here's the pole pieces. This is a six string, so you've got more, one for every string. And there's the pole pieces coming through the head, and you can see the magnetic pickup is on the back. And you can, if you look closely, there's just a little space. So it's not sitting right, it's not dampening the head at all. Hmm. And then you've got the, the wire that goes down to the jack. The jack goes through the flange and a person can plug it in right there. He also makes them where the jack is in the head. So if a person wants to buy a head and they have an acoustic banjo and they don't want to have to cut a hole in their flange for the jack, the jack can be right here. And they can just change the head and be electric. Well, that made any acoustic banjo easily electric, which is magic. So we started selling these and, and he gave us a, an agreement to be the only banjo company that actually is manufacturing and installing them on their banjos. Um, so we've really run with this ball and it's been just the greatest 
advancement. This is the actual, this banjo here is the model that Taylor Swift used on her big tour when she did the banjo, the song Mean, and she did the beautiful concerts with the banjo. It was the Boston six string with a cabanjo pickup that uh, she used on those tours. And the sound men who were just baffled because Electrifying a banjo and plugging it in and having it work only started working with the crossfire and anything acoustic was like, oh, they'd look at acoustic banjo and go, don't make me try to make that work. Well, you could plug this in and it was easier to EQ than a guitar. And they'd come to me and say, do you know that's easier to EQ than a guitar? I have no trouble with the banjo anymore. So that's, that's been great. That's what Mumford & Sons has used on all of their touring is the, the cabanjo pickup in their banjos and they've done just taken down the house in so many huge concerts everywhere it's just been terrific but that opened the door and that really boomed the banjo especially because Taylor did her tour and then Mumford and Sons was touring and you had American Authors touring you had just so many great banjo um, performances with great bands um, all around that time of um, after 2010 it was this huge groundswell of banjo for many years, and it's got so many more uh, people interested in playing, and, and not just in one genre, which is what we'd always hoped for, mm. to see it in every other genre. And now we're at all different kinds of concerts for every genre of music playing the banjo, and that's very exciting. But this has been, this has been key. I mean, it gives great, great sound and the mid-range is really good and um, it just doesn't have the feedback. That's the key thing. You can have a whole stack of Marshalls and it doesn't feedback because you're not putting the membrane of the head is not in the middle of the circuit so you don't have that becoming the feedback problem of it becomes like a speaker if you don't have the pulls through it. Mm. Now the pulls through it pick up right off the strings, problem handled. So that's revolutionary, and that's really unlocked a lot of performers being able to, to use the banjo and, and uh, succeed with it for big audiences. So that was the Deerings. You know, um, Greg started off at the uh, a little workshop in El Cajon, California, called American Dream, and there were luthiers in that shop in the uh, late 1960s and early 70s, including a guy named Bob Taylor. Maybe you heard of him. Um, <laughs> so an amazing output came from that little shop, obviously. And when Greg decided to start his own banjo company along with his wife Janet, it really was sort of an uphill battle. They didn't really know if they had an audience. They didn't really know who was going to buy these things. All they knew is they loved the instrument and he was a very good luthier and they put those two things together. Well, you know, talk about if you build it, they will come. An amazing, an amazing reputation in the music industry now. Um, I remember talking to Roy Clark once and he said, um, we certainly know that bluegrass music existed before Deering, but it wasn't the same. Hmm. Isn't that cool? Aww. I share that with Janet. I remember that's now that's an endearing comment. <laughs> uh, point being that they really did make a a big impact, especially on bluegrass music. And I love what they're doing with entry level banjos now too. Mm -hmm. They're really making it accessible for people that maybe want to try it out or are intrigued by the instrument, but don't want to spend the high prices of of what banjos usually go for. Yeah, good point. Absolutely. So now it looks like we're moving on to another new voice, Harry Sparks. Well, Harry, while what 
you know, for years I was communicating with him on email and we finally got to get together. He helped us get interviews with uh, J.D. Crow, who I think we're going to be hearing on a li- little bit later on the second segment. Um, just an amazing guy, knowledgeable about um, Vega in particular, but just a whole history of the banjo. And so I was so delighted to hang out with him. Uh, he's pretty famous for uh, starting a company called um, Famous Old Time Music Company <laughs> in Ohio and just having a lot of fun. As the title says, you know, he's just a guy who really wanted to focus on old-timey music and bluegrass music and early roots music and building the instruments to allow people to do that and then of course selling those um, as a retailer Uh, just an amazing guy so I'm very happy that we have an interview with him so let's hear a little bit from Harry Sparks I wish we had five hours to answer this next question but maybe you can give me a a condensed um, answer I'd love to get your thoughts about what you have seen is some of the developments of the banjo, um, some of the improvements. I know, you know, the um, resonator and, and things like that have come around over the years and there's been some slight changes. What, what is your perspective on the progression of it? Well, when, when you look at, at the banjo, and, and uh, a lot of people don't know, it, but I'm, I'm very involved in shooting, mostly shotguns. And... Uh, I shoot everything from flintlock shotguns to the most modern side-by-side, but uh, I, I don't shoot over-and-unders or automatics or pumps or any of that stuff. But, but for every kind of game, or every time, whether it's shooting clays or whether it's shooting live birds or whatever it is, uh, there's, there's a different gun. And it's not out of the ordinary to have banjos that are for different kinds of music. And you have your old-time banjos, which the way it was explained to me began as classical instruments. And they were played more classical and, and, and uh, not like we expected. But they fell into the hands of hillbillies, like me. And then people began to frail or claw hammer or double thumb or whatever you want to call those styles of playing. And then those banjos were usually the Fairbanks, which were intended to be classical instruments in the beginning, were used more in the string bands. And then along came, and, and actually in the early days of Monroe, uh, string bean, having nothing to do with string band, uh, did play the clawhammer style. And it wasn't until Earl Scruggs took a master tone banjo, which 90% of the master tones were produced in the uh, 20s and 30s and, and as uh, tenor banjos and plectrum banjos for a completely different kind of music than, than bluegrass. And then a few five-string banjos or so-called regular banjos were ordered. A RB is a regular banjo and a PB is a plectrum banjo, plectrum being a pick and it's a neck that's as long as a five-string neck but is uh, four strings only. And then there's there a couple of different uh, lengths of, of tenor. Now 
a aficionado would sit there, wait a minute, there's 15 versions. Yeah, there are. There, you know, and there's every brand imaginable out there from Bacon and Day to Paramount to Ludwig to, and, and so on and so forth. But in the end, uh, all these guys were developing all these different kinds of sounds and rings. And it's sort of, in my book, boiled down to if you really want to be an old-time picker, you have no tone ring at all in your banjo, you've got a skinhead on it, you may not even have frets. And you've got a very simple sounding banjo and it's very soft sounding and then most people stick stuff behind between the rod and the head to further mute the banjo. So it's a very soft and very quiet sound. Uh, but when you get into Dixieland or any of those kind of ragtime bands and all that where they plectrum and the and the tenor banjos, that most of those guys want the raucousest banjo, loudest, nastiest sounding thing they could contrive. And so that was going on. And then people who needed more volume did buy the master tones and either the, uh, their two style heads on those, one's a little keener sounding, one's a little bassier sounding. And uh, Earl Scruggs got his hands on a five string master tone banjo. And because Earl Scruggs played it as well as he did, and when he did, and did what he did, that became the quintessential banjo for that kind of music. That was the target. Now, there, there's arguments about this, but there are exceptions to every rule, but, but the Ralph Stanley played a master tone, happened to be a raised head. Uh, Don Reno had a master tone, was a flat head. Yeah, you can go down to J.D. Crow played a, a flathead master tone. He might have he owned a couple, three of them. And all these guys found that they could deliver the bluegrass sound, which was initiated by Earl Scruggs' three-finger style picking. There's a story that uh, Stringbean was standing at the Opry watching Earl Scruggs play with Bill Monroe for the first time. And a fellow walked up to Stringbean and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm watching a guy take my job. And uh, that's, that's what happened. I mean, Scruggs went out to play a, a tune with uh, uh, Monroe and of course uh, the rest is history. But those banjos, everybody's been trying, a fellow named Huber and, and uh, a guy named Blaylock and, uh, and the famous old time music company. We all produced repro rings because there weren't enough original flatheads to go around. Mm a limited number of these, and they became extraordinarily expensive, and most people couldn't afford them. But uh, everybody was trying to replicate to the best possible way the 1930s flathead master tones, and either the style three, four, Granada, sometimes six, but uh, those, those were the, the ultimate, and in my opinion, which is not always right, but my opinion, there's nothing to replace the original flathead master tone banjo in the right hands. You give it to, to any of these people and, and some, some of the guys that are playing them today are playing some of the most outrageously wonder, uh, wonderful music on them. I mean, uh, Bela Fleck can, can get wonderful music out of a, an original flathead master tone, but he also uses a lot of other banjos. 
and uh, Ned Lubarecki, he plays that style banjo and he plays phenomenal music on it that isn't, I wouldn't by any means call it old-timey bluegrass. But they've taken those banjos and they found that they are a, a real source of great music. If you go over to the open back world and all that, I think that most of us have, at least Harry Bickle, my good friend, and I have, have, have enormous fondness for the Fairbanks family of banjos. Cole, uh, Cole and Fairbanks were down the street from each other in Boston. They built similar banjos in many ways. And the Fairbanks series of that came with the first one was called the Electric, which had a scalloped uh, part of a tone ring that had a ring on top of it. Then that evolved into later the White Lady tone ring. And then the other one was the tubaphone, and those two banjos really dominated the the Fairbanks vocabulary and and uh, banjos. And and to me, the those are wonderful banjos. I've been told this, and I don't know if this is a fact or not, but I've I've been told that that uh, the same guy that developed the Lord Lore mandolin, Lord Lore. Uh, the F5 that he developed, he also worked on the ball bearing tone ring and he also did the flathead and the archtop tone ring while he was at Gibson. Now, I, I have no absolute written records of that at all, but I've been told that by some guys that I thought were knowledgeable. But uh, I'm sure somebody that hears this interview is gonna jump out of their chair and say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about, and I may not. <laughs> Well, there's almost a mystique about the the rings, right? The um, the tone. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's there's more uh, more superstition mm -hmm. than fact. Uh, when we set out to try to replicate the ring, we had a very small amount of metal that we took out of both a uh, arch top tone ring and a uh, flathead tone ring. Uh, I guarantee you, both of them were original banjos. And we took them over to the University of Cincinnati's metallurgical lab, put them under a spectrometer or a spectroscope or some kind of fancy machine. The guy said, oh yeah. And he looked under it and he said, oh, here. And he picked up one of his books that was about two inches thick and opened it up and he said, right here, that's what this is. And what is it? And he said, it's German bell bronze. And I said, so, he said, 80-20, 80% copper, 20% tin, and both ingots need to be as pure as possible. Now, the term they use when you buy ingot, which is a, a raw metal in a block, is you get standard if you just go in and buy it, and it's guaranteed to be 85 to 90% pure. You buy virgin ingot, and that's the term they use, you get 95 to 100%. So there's 5% still floating around there that you can scratch your head and wonder what it really is. So you're not dealing with 100% with of anything. So you can find traces, uh, trace elements of, of all kinds of things. But the one other key factor was that you do not, in bell bronze and bell making, it says in the formula in the book, there's nothing I invented, I just learned about it, that uh, you do not use magnesium flux while you're casting your brass because it will not let the metal work harden when you put it in the lathe to make the bell or the tone ring out of it. Mm. But, but you can, these guys, they're, they're hell-bent on, they've found the, the magic <laughs> formula. And I said, yeah, but 
why doesn't it sound like Earl Scruggs' banjo? <laughs> so, or J.D. Crowe's, or uh, Reno Smiley, you know, the, the, all, you go down the whole, the whole long list, it's funny. So once again, that was Harry Sparks. Next up, I have never met Bill Rickard, but I want to. <laughs> he is, just by his interview, he is such a positive, happy person, and his story is so inspiring, and it, Again, there's in every podcast, I feel like I say this, but he genuinely makes me love what he does, even though I am not a banjo player and I don't have a huge background in instruments or anything like that. But just the way he talks about what he does and his love for what he does and how it's helped him just just like, like goosebumps. It's amazing. You know, I remember walking out of that interview is putting the uh, gear back in the car, and I thought to myself, this is exactly why I love what I do. We got to just document this passion. You know, it's hard to, you know, we use that word all the time in the music products industry, but to be able to actually express someone's passion, it's, it's kind of hard to do. You could talk about why you like something, but to hear this guy and just sort of, as you said, feel what he's saying and be a part of it is just really amazing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of common within the world of banjo players and banjo makers. You know, it, it is in many aspects of the industry, but banjo people are banjo people. Right. You know, that's there's no doubt about it. It's yeah. in their blood. And if anything is in Bill's blood, it is definitely the banjo. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, I, I always wanted to build resophonic guitars originally. And being that I, my spun off of my, my career at manufacturing, I'm a metal guy, really. So I, I fabricate, I laser cut things and bend metal, spin metal, that type of stuff. And I started looking at guitars, resophonic guitars, and didn't know much about them. I found out there was a, a spider bridge style, originally I think it was a Dobro or, or vice versa, natural, national. I'm not, I think Dobro did the spider cone, national did a biscuit cone my understanding. I could be corrected on that, by the way. But uh, I had an interest in metal, and instead of starting into a guitar, I thought, you know, I wonder what would have happened if we put a biscuit cone into a banjo. So being I made all the parts in brass and antiqued them and whatnot, I made all the parts, bent the rims myself. I have machinery I've designed to build rims, make rims. I bend all my own steam and bend all my own rims. And... Uh, we built basically a, a resonator style, or really a, like a, a resonator style banjo with a resonator on it and dropped a, a cone into it, a, a biscuit cone, which is the bridge is sitting right up on the top on, the, on a cone, on a, on a the biscuit's a piece of wood that sits on the top of the cone. And uh, it uh, put it on a titanium ring because I'm a metal guy again. I've got all kinds of titanium around my shop. It sounded great. We're actually working on one right now that we're combining the banjo with the resophonic guitar theory, and we're going to put a tubaphone tone ring, which is well-known in old-time music and old banjos. We're actually going to set that cone now on that uh, particular tubaphone tone ring, and we think, my gamble is, the volume should be really increased, that you almost shouldn't need a pickup. So... Uh, at the same time, we're getting into going back now because we're doing guitars. I got about four resophonic guitars started. Uh, met a fellow a while back who kind of encouraged me a little bit. was a company uh, called Rayco Resophonics out of Smithers, B.C. And we used to talk on the phone about uh, 
fish and wildlife stuff issues going over borders and that. And uh, we built this one jointly to, to show. And uh, we're spinning off. Now I'm going to do some, the plan is, because I don't like doing something that everybody else is doing, we're going to do some resonator guitars, but what they call with a fiddle edge. Dobro used to build them like that. So it's really a rolled metal edge. And then, well, it's hard to describe verbally, but it's something you see very, very few of today. So I thought that would be a real challenge because now we can do something that nobody else is doing. So that kind of caught my eye. So that's in, that's in process right now. Hopefully by the next NAM show we'll have something to show you. So. Yeah, yeah. So what are some of the challenges of making resophonic guitars? Oh, it's a totally different layout than wood. You know, wood vibrates and that metal kind of dull uh, choice was to go to, you know, you can use uh, German silver, you can use brass, or you can use steel. I kind of focused on using steel, carbon steel. I think it has a more, it's a, it's a cleaner sound to me. That's just in my ear. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would disagree, but that, and we're looking at doing brass. Brass is probably pretty easy to do compared to steel. Uh, it's just, we're just learning the setup. The problem, by the way, the biggest thing with a, with a rezzo style banjo is the bridge on a banjo is usually set back off the center and it's movable. Banjo players are always adjusting the bridge. They're constantly going out of tune. Well, the minute you go to a, a cone, on a, on a make a banjo and you bring it back and you position the bridge, it's gotta be right in the center of the, of the rim, of the, from the string length. And you can't move the bridge, so you're stuck. So we're, we're actually working on something, we can have an adjustable bridge. And that, should, that would be really neat if we could do that. So the one we got now, it's okay, but boy, if it goes out of tune or something moves the slightest, as everybody knows banjos are the worst things in the world to tune, so. That was the hardest thing, was getting that bridge located in the middle, and we had a fret length problem we had to sort out, and a number of frets to the body. And so it's kind of an evolving project right now. But it looks really, really promising. To, to my, I, I'm totally amazed that there's that much interest in it. But I guess because the sound, it does sound unique. So once again, that was Bill Rickard. Just amazing passion coming mm. through in that interview. No it's doubt. great to hear from him. Moving on to our final segment of this episode of the podcast, some final thoughts from these banjo makers, and we're going to start out by hearing from Greg Deering. There's a lot more genres of music playing the banjo, or at least it seems to be more accepted in different realms. Have you seen that too? Very much so, and um, it's an interesting game. When we were last week, we spent three days with Jens Kruger at his house, and one of the things that he was showing us was a number of, he had a list of singer-songwriters that had huge audiences and their videos had, you know, 20 million viewers, you know, and says, we got to get these guys to play the banjo. I said, yeah, we do. And, you know, all it would take is one of them to do a successful video that went viral to make a huge difference in the banjo world. And I came home and sat right in this office with Jamie, our daughter, and said, we need to go do this. And she goes, well, they're not the biggest audiences, and, and, the, and the audiences of the singer-songwriters don't buy a lot of instruments. And then she started showing me picture after picture after picture of punk and heavy metal with banjo and massive audiences, and she said, these audiences buy a lot of instruments. Says, so she was already ahead of the curve on wow. me. And that's the main place we're seeing huge increase in banjos is punk and um, heavy metal. 
You know, and there's precedence to that. Our first gold album was Joe Satriani recording with one of our banjos, one of the top heavy metal guys in the world. Jerry Garcia, the founder of the Grateful Dead, started as a banjo player. So, just hoping its natural evolution is for that to banjo to have its place. And the cavanjo pickup helps a lot with that. So that was Greg Deering, and next up is my new friend crush, Bill Rickard. It's interesting, I wanted a guitar when I was about 15, and my father, who was a carpenter at the time, asked and said, well, you have to either get a job or build one. The job possibilities didn't look that great. That was back in the 60s. So I decided I'd build one. Did one at a shop class, and they thought I was crazy, but I actually finished it. And that started it, started the bug. And I, I've lost count how many guitars I built. I got it from electric guitars to acoustic guitars, and then started, because I played, so I started to learn to play bluegrass music and whatnot, and then swung into playing banjo. And did that till I was probably, oh, I guess, probably until I was about 26, maybe maybe 24, and uh, ended up got married, had a son, and thought maybe it was time to get serious. There's a family business that from my wife's side, and uh, got involved in manufacturing from that. And I used to work, in fact, I actually used to work in tunnels before that, underground. So I did it always as a hobby, where the music thing was always a secondary thing, kept me, kept me going. And... Uh, <clears throat> got into manufacturing, and to be honest with you, I got so involved in manufacturing, I totally stopped playing, stopped building instruments in my late 20s, and got back at it very unusually. I was in a, in a music or a, a record store back in, I was 50, just turned 58, I guess. No, sorry, 48, I, I'm losing touch. 48, 58 was it. And decided I heard some banjo music, clawhammer style banjo, more old time music. So I uh, bought a CD, went home, found out the fellow that produced the CD actually played in Aurora, where I'm from. Called him up day after Christmas, and by Boxing Day, I was, not Boxing Day, by New Year's Day, I was taking lessons. And typical of me, I was, you know, five days a week, I was playing a couple hours a day, and got, just took my life over again. Started playing, my old, all my old friends started appearing again, and, and got back into music. And unfortunately, I guess I just about, I just turned 57, and I was involved in, this is what I was doing again on the side, involved in manufacturing full-time and had a thing to take care of in Italy. I was going to go from Italy to England, a project we were doing in California. I did packaging equipment, uh, uh, basically industrial automation. So I'm around machinery all the time, computers and whatnot. And first day I was there, I was in Italy, a friend of mine used to, when I was very young, I used to be very involved in motorcycles all my life and racing sidecars and whatnot, doing all those young things. And I uh, was on a Ducati motorcycle. Somebody had arranged for a, a motorcycle. It was an importer from Canada. They knew me. And I was not, I guess, three, four hours, and I got a young man come over the center line in an aggregate truck and hit me head on and changed my life instantly. And... Uh, Took my arm off, took my leg off on the spot. I was laying on the road, knew it. I knew what had happened, and was with it kind of till they got me in the ambulance. I remember telling them I didn't speak Italian. Everybody was yelling at me in Italian. And it was an interesting story, and it, it's hard to believe, but it's a very true story. I was 
My wife got a call. They said I wasn't going to make it because I cut the arteries on my shoulder and my chest was opened. And uh, it, was, it was a really bad accident. And my, my arteries were cut on my leg. And uh, wife got over. They said I wasn't going to make it. They airlifted me the same day by helicopter to a university hospital. And uh, from the university hospital, my wife arrived. Next day, I was still alive, fortunately, and uh, found out from the surgeon there who spoke English that it was not only a bad day for our family, but the family the surgeon that had saved my, my life, the first surgeon that saw me, had uh, gone home and found out his 20-year-old son had been in an accident and hit a man on a motorcycle, which was me. So the man that saved my life, it was his son that hit me. That's very, very strange. I, I laugh to people now. I say, I should have bought lottery tickets that week. But it was a life-changing experience. And I spent a lot of time in the hospital recovering. They told me I'd never work again. I would never, uh, I definitely can't play music anymore. I've lost my arm out of the shoulder joint. And I'd uh, never walk. I think within six months I was walking with a prosthetic leg and back at work. But severely depressed, you know, because like, you didn't think it was only going to happen to other people. And it was interesting. I found something that was very, the reason I'm telling you the story, it was very interesting. What got me back into what I'm doing now was the music. And I had people come to the hospital. The word got out because I'd been playing for the last six, seven years. And everybody knew me in Toronto. I got to be known by friends and whatnot, musicians. And they said, you know, Bill had had this terrible accident, couldn't play anymore. And everybody started turning up at my hospital room and playing music for me. It was, a, I totally, it was unbelievable to me. People I didn't even know. I had a fellow who plays professional harmonica, believe it or not, in bluegrass. And I'm sorry, my memory's very terrible. I forget his name now, but he gave me a fruit basket full of uh, harmonicas and said, you only needed one arm to play harmonica. <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't tell me how, how hard it was to play harmonica. <laughs> so I'd always played stringed instruments. And that happened for, I guess, about a month. I was in the hospital. Every day, somebody came to play for me. And a lot of the business friends I had in corporate life, I'd never seen them since. Never, it's just, and I, maybe there's a reason. I, I analyzed, I think people mostly in the music and the arts are much more compassionate people. It, it really affected me. And I decided, because all these fellows had come to see me, and the one fellow initiated this, he was a banjo, taught me to play banjo, a fellow Chris Cool. He's a very well-known banjo player in, in Canada and plays down in the U.S. now, professionally. And, and uh, I decided to uh, build him a banjo, because I've been in automation all my life. When I say build him a banjo, I mean like every nut and bolt. I mean, when I say I build a banjo, I make, uh, I'm actually making the tuners now, cutting the gears myself. So I make every nut and bolt and washer in that banjo. I make the rims, I cut the necks. I, so it's basically done by computer now. And I worked out how to build instruments, banjos. I'm doing guitars right now. We've done some resophonic banjos. And everything I'm doing, I figured out how to do with one hand. Just because I realized my mind, you, know, you apply yourself, you just do things backwards or do them differently. And uh, it took off. I, that was in, by 2004, I started up another company. I've got a young fellow who's going to take my business over. I'm mentoring him to do that on the, on the side even today and giving him an opportunity to own a business, and I've decided to build banjos full-time, got back in the music industry. And I'd say, I'm now retired, and I can now work seven days a week, uh, which I'm doing, and, but totally enjoying it. 
and getting really, I was, I guess I'm, I figure I'm the luckiest man in the world, I tell people, and they look at me funny and say, you know what, I'm doing exactly what I want to do, and I didn't think I could do it. I wanted to come back and build instruments when I retired, and I thought I couldn't do it, and I proved that it was possible. And met a lot of really great people since then in the industry. So that's kind of inspired me, and uh, hope to do a lot more. It's just taken off. It's a long story, but it's no, kind of had a, kind of an odd way it came to be. Very so. inspirational. Well, thank you. You obviously have a lot of drive and passion, and I'm sure that's come in handy. Yes, I'd say so. I'm a I'm a guy with glasses always half full, always. <laughs> One thing I found from the accident, I found I, I get very upset. I had to get out of my corporate business life, and I found I, I can't handle people anymore that complain about life. And I work with, through hospital, I work with vets coming back from Afghanistan and whatnot, and you, know, you sit and cry with them for half an hour after they lost a couple of limbs. And I actually told a person once, I, he'd lost both his arms. I said, you know, I, I don't know. I said, I'm, I'm lucky. I said, I got one arm. And uh, it's... Uh, like I say, totally changed my life. Can we talk a little bit about some of the modifications you've made on the equipment in order to um, make some of these instruments? Yeah, the first thing I did, I designed a, in fact, I, I, I tried to play again, and I actually made an aluminum extrusion that would go up the backside of the neck of the, of the banjo and had an air reservoir with a bunch of small fingers. And I found out it didn't work because I couldn't beat the notes out with my foot. Could beat the time, but not the notes. So we abandoned playing. I'm actually I'm trying to learn to play a Chapman stick now. But to build the instruments, uh, I came up with some really neat holding devices. I call them my second arm. Basically, they were air-operated uh, vices, metal vices, wood vices, and put an air motor on them with a gear ratio system because I, I do that type of work for other people, and I had control the the vice very slowly. So now when I pick up a fingerboard and I want to fret it, I can put it into the vise with one hand and close it very slowly. It holds it firmly and work with my right hand. Uh, made all kinds of devices for holding guitars, holding banjos. I work on them, tables, and I can rotate them. And basically, I sit in a chair and I do it with one hand. Again, a lot of the stuff now that we've switched over to CNC. I did the first ones, I actually cut the pearl inlay myself, cut from raw shell. And now I just... Uh, we're actually getting away from pearl going right into wood inlays, reconstitute a stone and whatnot. But it's being done on a CNC router. To a lot of people, I guess, complain and say, well, CNC cutting is not real art, which I fail to agree with. Uh, we get it real close, and then by the guitar, then you do it, then I go back by hand and sand and tap tone and whatnot from there. But uh, made a lot of devices. The funny thing is, too, a lot of the devices I came up with, I don't use anymore. I find I can handle pretty much with one hand. It gets annoying. The, the air gets a bit blue sometimes, but that's, that's the best way I can put it. You know, and I, the, the biggest problem I had, I think, is my brain still tells me I can work. So I go into my shop in the morning and figure I'm going to do this much in a day, and I get maybe 50% done, and I'm really lucky. So that's the frustrating thing. I can't move as fast, but it gets done. So, but that's uh, the savior of computers, I guess, right now is the big thing. It's uh, kept me going. Some great final thoughts there on our uh, first segment of the banjo focusing on the makers. I want to do a little uh, 
Shout out to Michelle. Thank you so much for taking the time to put all this together, going through these interviews and finding these awesome segments. I really appreciate it. And Mike and all the things you're about to do uh, <laughs> and making this so smooth. I appreciate working with you guys. This is a lot of fun. You know, I think Michelle might be a banjo player after this podcast. <laughs> I think so. I think so. <laughs> Sounds you know, like she's got the bug. <laughs> maybe we can borrow Bill's. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and tune in in two weeks for the second part to the Banjo Podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Michelle Shedler, and Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.